I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 8th, 2014. Coming up, as a part of the Conference of World Affairs, we talk with Maggie Kurth Baker about the energy crisis and what we can or can't do to conquer it. Welcome to this special edition of How on Earth. This week, the 66th annual Conference of World Affairs is happening on the campus of CU Boulder, and today's show is one of the events. This show is Conference of World Affairs Panel 2051, titled Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Conquers Us. The speaker and our guest in the studio today is Maggie Kurth Baker. She writes a monthly column, Eureka, for the New York Times Magazine, and is also the science editor at boingboing.net. She enjoys exploring the intersection between science and culture, and you can find your daily dose of Maggie Science through her website at maggiekb.com. She has co-authored a book, let's see if I can do this in one breath, titled Be Amazing, Glow in the Dark, Control the Weather, Perform Your Own Surgery, Get Out of Jury Duty, Identify a Witch, Colonize a Nation, Impress a Girl, Make a Zombie, Start Your Own Religion. Her recent book, with a shorter title, is called (laughs) Before the Lights Go Out, Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Conquers Us. And that is the topic that brings her here today. Welcome to How on Earth, Maggie. Hi, thank you for having me. So, uh... For background, can you first give us maybe a definition and some history of the electric grid? Because I know you talk about that. Yeah. So I I got really fascinated by this um, when I was, I started out just wanting to write a book about energy. And the more that I kind of delved into how energy works in this country, the electric grid really stood out as this just fascinating piece of equipment that we don't pay any attention to. Because we all sort of have this idea that, you know, you flip a light switch and the magical little elves that live in your wall make the lights shine. Yay. And it's, it's everywhere and yet you don't notice it. It's everywhere and yet you don't notice it at all. And this infrastructure turns out to have this just amazing history. And one of the things that I think is most important to pay attention to is the fact that it was never designed. It's not a designed system and it's an evolved system. And for the most part, it evolved in the hands of people who had no idea what they were doing. You know, you think of Thomas Edison and this team of geniuses, but On the ground, these grids, these early grids were all put together by people that bought technology from Edison, didn't have the expertise, didn't have the experts, and just kind of put things together by trial and error, and then slowly over time connected these flawed systems to one another until we have this nationwide grid that we have today. And so when we think about the future of energy, I think we often get kind of caught into this dialogue where we're, we think we're talking about replacing something that we know works and that is really stable and great with this big unknown that's kind of scary. And the reality is that what we're actually talking about is replacing something that's flawed in some really important ways with something better. So these were systems that were basically built locally in a lot of ways yeah. Oh, with, yeah. with no grand scheme. No, no. I mean, the the first grids were... 
The very first grid was just a couple of blocks in New York City around uh, Thomas Edison's Pearl Street power plant. The second grid in the in the U.S. was in Appleton, Wisconsin, and was originally just a factory and the mansion of H.J. Rogers, who was a um, a businessman there in town. So just a personal grid. Yeah, basically. And then slowly <laughs> these things got connected to other people's houses, and they were all very, very local to begin with. And in fact, up until the 1970s, there were still towns in the U.S. that weren't connected to a national grid in any way. So these little independent grids that were designed for designed or not for some specific local use then get kind of interconnected. Yeah, yeah. Over time, one of the things that you find is that um, it is hard to keep up with supply and demand. And this is actually really important because the electric grid, the way that it works, it's it's much more precarious than you think that it is. So the electricity on the grid has to always have this almost perfect balance between electric supply and electric demand. We have no storage. You think of batteries as being just omnipresent all throughout our society, but there's not batteries on the electric grid. And we have to maintain that balance almost perfectly. If it gets out of whack between by even fractions of a percent, you get blackouts. So you have these people who are watching the grid 24 hours a day, seven days a week, holidays, they're there on New Year's Eve, they're there on Christmas, and it's their job to maintain that almost perfect balance. And it's it's a tightrope. It's a, it can be a really complicated thing to do because you don't really know necessarily when there's going to be sudden changes in how much electricity people want or how much electricity you can make. Um, and so these grids, as more and more people wanted electricity, were finding it harder and harder to keep up with demand in their towns. And so there would be these rolling blackouts throughout towns. And that led to a lot of these small local grids being connected into something that larger. So you have these gremlins or these wizards behind the scenes <clears throat> yeah. making it work. You do, yeah. And they're they're in they're called grid controllers and there are grid control facilities all across the United States and Canada and um it's these engineers jobs. One of the things they do is do predictions um of how much electricity is going to be demanded at a certain time of day on a given day. And they use, you know, history and weather reports and things like that to make those predictions. And then the other thing that they can do is get on the phone and call up power plants and say, we need you to produce more. We need you to produce less. And that's it's like Wall Street. You have, you're trying to guess what's going to happen. It is. And... It is to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, they have it. They have it obviously pretty well controlled because your lights work. We have work. lights here. The radio is working. The radio, you know, everything <laughs> works most of the time. But it is something where, you know, I went to one of these things in Texas, and it's this big room, probably about the size of like a couple movie theaters together and really tall and has like screens all over one wall. And these guys at these great big desks with like 15 monitors each in front of them. And it's dim in there, and it's really cold, and it's really silent. It's They're like not walking... playing video games. No, no. <laughs> it's like walking into a cathedral, almost. Mm. And I had kind of thought like... I guess reading about it before I got there, I sort of had the idea that there would be these alarms going off and, you know, people running around. And I had asked them about... It's very quiet. Yeah, no, like the, like the grave. And they told me that they don't have alarms because if they did, they'd go off so often that people would just ignore them. Oh, that 
that's nice to know. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so you 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 mentioned before the system is fundamentally flawed, and you kind of mentioned a little about the balance. What are some of the other flaws, and what are some of the ideas for overcoming those? Well, so that balance issue ends up being really important to the future of energy, because the as this grid evolved, it evolved alongside and kind of in tandem with these sources of energy that are what people call controllable. So to a certain extent, uh, to varying extents rather, coal, natural gas, hydropower, and even somewhat nuclear are all things that those grid controllers can get on the line and say, we need more of this or we need less of this. And it can respond relatively quickly. You know, natural gas can respond very quickly. Mm -hmm. Nuclear can't respond very quickly at all. But they can, you know, in between on this kind of scale, they can all respond to those requests. And that becomes a problem when we start trying to add wind and solar into this grid that evolved with these very different sources of energy. Because if there's not wind, you can't get the wind farm to produce more if there's not more wind to produce it from. If there's not a sunny enough day, you can't get them to produce more solar power. And it's not killer by any means, but it induces a little bit more instability into this already mm -hmm. unstable system. And the more instability you add, the harder it becomes to control. Sure. You know, you could call up a generator using uh, hydro or some steady baseline and say, you know, we need more and they'll get that. Yep. But wind, you can't demand to it, you know it's, it's very dependent on what's actually happening with that natural resource at that given time um so what ends up happening is that there is you know with the old grid that we have in place right now there's a certain amount and nobody really knows what it is but there's a certain amount of wind and solar that they think they can really put into that before things are going to become really really difficult to manage and most of the experts that I talk to think that that's around 30% of capacity, which we're nowhere near yet. I mean, there's we can put tons more wind and solar into the grid because I think it's like, what, 2% right now. But what it tells you is that we have to change the grid. We have to change this way that electricity is moved around and how we're connected into this network, not just where our sources of energy are coming from. And I think that that's something that gets lost a lot of times when we're talking about energy, that we think, well, if we just build enough wind farms, the problem's solved. But it's more than that. It's also about changing this infrastructure that we've become reliant on and that shapes what we can do with energy. Are you talking a wholesale redesign or... Bits and pieces, uh, you know, are you shaking up the whole grid or <laughs> discarding it altogether? Is it centralized or distributed? Part of what we have to do is make the grid something that can communicate faster than it can right now. Um, when you had that great big blackout on the East Coast in 2003, yes, 2003, one of the reasons that that happened was because information about what was happening on the grid was not getting to the grid controllers fast enough. So when they went back there, you know, one of the things that they can do in laboratories is sort of replay blackout events and mm -hmm. see exactly what happened and kind of model how these disasters came about. And when they went back and remodeled that later, what they found is that there were signs of massive failures an hour before mm -hmm. anything actually failed. And those signs weren't picked up. But those up. signs weren't getting picked up. And um, if you look at the grid, you know, if you have a power plant go offline in New Mexico, you can see signals of that in Canada in less than a second. And right now, 
or at least in 2003, it took 30 seconds for information about what was happening on the grid to get mm -hmm. to the grid controllers. We've got that down to about 15 seconds now, but that's still a big lag time when it comes to what's happening and that information getting to the people that have to keep it balanced perfectly. And so one of the things that has been changing and that we're in the process of doing more is putting in these things called phaser measurement units, which are just you know boring little boxes in a server farm somewhere, but they speed up how fast that happens. And that's something that can really enable us to put more wind and solar onto the grid, because if that information is happening faster, then it gives the grid controllers more time to respond to it and more time to bring in resources from other places. It, it again, reminds me of Wall Street with the micro-trading with the computers doing things so fast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, just for those of you who may have tuned in midway, you're listening to Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and also Conference of World Affairs Panel 2051. We're speaking with Maggie Kurth-Baker about the grid, its strengths and weaknesses, and uh, maybe move into a little about uh, some issues about energy conservation as a maybe a factor in the future energy crisis. I know that people have different motivations for conserving or not. Mm -hmm. They're not all environmentalists who believe that uh, the world is going to end if you don't conserve. And you have people who don't believe in climate change who are still, I think, as you said in your book, driving a Prius and using complex fluorescent bulbs. Well, so. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I found um, looking at surveys and stuff that people have done. Americans really disagree on climate change. Americans in general really agree on energy efficiency and using fewer resources. And they agree for very different reasons. And I've kind of come to believe myself that I don't really care why you're using less energy. I'm just in favor of you doing it. But the thing that really stood out to me was when this nonprofit in Kansas did some focus groups um, trying to understand what people thought about climate and what they thought about energy before they really started doing their campaigns. And they did these in Kansas City and Wichita, and they kept bringing in people and having these conversations where, you know, people would say, well, I think climate change is a hoax. And I think that this is a plot to control our lives with big government. But then you would ask them about, you know, things like energy efficiency. And it would turn out that these same guys owned a Prius and they were changing out all their light bulbs to CFLs because they were interested in being less reliant on outside sources of fuel in the U.S. Um, they were interested in saving money. They were interested in kind of almost like this sort of gadgety, like my stepfather is a mechanic in the Ozarks, and he's fascinated by alternative energy because to him it's another thing to tinker on. It's another sort of thing to be mm -hmm. kind of to play with just the same way that he might go out and buy a new motorcycle. So he's putting up a wind turbine on their farm because he's excited about the self-reliance and he's excited about the ability to have this thing that he controls rather than that somebody else controls and he doesn't know anything about. So you have a range of reasons, whether it's climate change or other aspects of environmentalism or loving to tinker right. or independence being off the grid yep. or something like that. So regardless of the motivation, uh, there should be ways to kind of get everyone nonpartisanly on board for averting an impending energy crisis, perhaps? Well, yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem is that we have more than one energy crisis that we're kind of at the crux of right now. I mean, we have climate change. 
we have dwindling fossil fuel supplies, or at least the fossil fuel supplies becoming harder and harder to extract, which it be- makes them more expensive, which may as well mean that they're dwindling. Um, and then you have also this issue of aging infrastructure, which is a very big deal. You know, if you look out your window and you see the, um, you know, the light pole with the little cylindrical um, transformer up at the top of it, the average lifespan of those transformers is 40 years. The average age of those transformers is 42 years. We've not done any kind of big technological updates or replacements to our electric grid, particularly the distribution grids within cities since the 1970s. And that is going to be a problem as we go forward. I mean, this is something that we're going to have to deal with, whether or not you think that there are energy crises there is a infrastructure aging crisis, and that's undeniable. And so we're going to have to update this just the same way that you have to go through your house and trade out a Commodore 64 for, you know, a new MacBook. Something has to happen at a certain point or you're going to have problems. What are the ways to change it? How can we conquer it? (laughs) So, I mean, there are all these individual little technological changes, and there are many, many of them. Again, are you talking... Peace solutions yeah, bit well, by bit I, rather than an over, overriding directive? Well, I think almost it has to be little pieces because there's nobody that controls the entire grid. Um, you know, it's it's a thing that's owned by lots of different entities, um, none of which is really governmental particularly. I mean, it's a lot of some parts of it are owned by municipal electricity companies. Some parts of it are owned by corporations. Um, different corporations in different parts. Um, it's been split up ownership over the last 30 years with um, deregulation. So it used to be like, you used to have the people you paid money to as your utility owned all different aspects of the infrastructure. And today they might own just the distribution grid and somebody else owns transmission and somebody else owns generation. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of different entities that you have to work with. And the thing that makes the most sense is to start changing little pieces piecemeal where those things can be done. Um, so you're talking about things like smart meters. You're talking about things like putting storage onto the grid. You're talking about those phaser measurement units that I talked about. You're talking about doing decentralization so that parts of the grid can operate on their own mm. better than they can do right now. Right now, it's very difficult to have... Um, any small chunk of the grid go off by itself. So when you had Hurricane Sandy in New York, you had great big office buildings that were running just fine with their own generators in the basement in the hospital next door that was blacked out, but there was no way for that office building to To share share. energy. And so one of the things that really needs to happen is to make these technological changes to the grid that allows that kind of sharing because that also then allows us to have access to natural resources that are closer by and that are smaller scale. And so that makes us more resilient and it makes us more able to capture renewable resources where we can get them. Hydropower is a really great example of this because we're never going to have another Hoover Dam because we have no place to build another Hoover Dam. Like we are out of places in the U.S. to build large scale hydroelectric power plants. Mm -hmm. We just don't have it geologically. The only way that we can do any kind of big increase to hydropower in this country is by focusing in on these tiny, tiny little places where you do, instead of building a dam and flooding out a valley, you make a cut in the river and it flows through a power plant and then back into the river again. 
Um, so, for instance, in Kansas right now, we have one of those, and it's in Lawrence. And um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it produces enough energy to power a few thousand homes every year. If Kansas took advantage of all the places where they could do that, you could power hundreds of thousands of homes every year. And that's not enough to like get Kansas off of coal. But when you're talking about a state that's predominantly coal-powered, as Kansas is, that makes a huge difference. You talked about uh, storage mm -hmm. on the grid. And one thing that came to mind when you mentioned that was if electric vehicles become very predominant, can those actually be used as a storage within the grid? They can be used for load shifting, which is a form of storage. So one of the things that we find is that there are certain times of days when times of day when people use energy and when they don't, right? Overnight you're not using much. There's not very much demand at night. But wind power, particularly on the plains where there is the most wind, is strongest at night. So you can produce all of this wind power at night, but nobody needs it. Um, so one of the things that you can do is if you have enough of electric cars out there, you can charge those overnight with that cheap wind power and then be able to use that during the day. And that sort of helps to shift around where demand happens. And that makes it easier for the grid to be balanced during the day if all those electric cars are charging at night rather than at the peak sure. times in the afternoon. So for a final question, mm -hmm. will we conquer the energy crisis? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Fair <it's>, answer. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that it's a really hard thing to manage. And I've sort of come to believe that one of the big problems of modernity is institutional inertia. And overcoming institutional inertia in politics, in sciences, in infrastructure, it's really, really, really difficult to take this thing that we've already built and rely on and change it. And I don't know whether we have the power to do that yet. Well, I hope we're optimistic about it. <laughs> I try. Well, thank you very much, Maggie, for uh, that insight into the grid past, present, and future. Uh, you'll be on a few other panels, I believe, for the Conference of World Affairs, one today at 1230, uh, called How Many School Shootings Will It Take in the UMC Center Ballroom? On Wednesday, you have two, one at 9 o'clock, Alternative Energy, hip to be green, in the UMC <laughs> West Ballroom. Also at 11 on Wednesday, Global Energy Economics at the Wolf Law Woodmeyer Courtroom. And finally, on Thursday at 2 o'clock, Controversies Inside Science at the UMC 235. Mm -hmm. So I hope you enjoy your uh, week at the Conference of World Affairs. I will do that. We have been talking with science journalist Maggie Kurth Baker as part of the Conference of World Affairs panel titled Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Conquers Us. You can find her on boingboing.net and on Twitter at the handle MaggieKB1. If you want to read more about her uh, writings and the energy crisis, get her recent book, Before the Lights Go Out, Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Conquers Us. And if you are in the Boulder area, you can catch her throughout the rest of this week at the Conference on World Affairs at the University of Colorado. Boulder Campus. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. 
I was the producer and engineer for this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.